This class is part of the Lessons in Tanya project. More classes available at LessonsInTanya.com Funding for Igeret HaTshuva, the Epistle on Repentance, is provided by Isaac, son of Devorah Mindel. Lessons in Tanya The Tanya of Rabbi Schneir Zalman of Liadi Taught by Rabbi Ben-Zion Krasniansky Tanya's text elucidated by Rabbi Yosef Weinberg Chapter 7 After he explained in the previous two chapters What is the meaning of tshuva tato? What is the meaning of the lower level of tshuva? He introduced the Zohar. He introduced the Zohar. In chapter 4, he introduced the Zohar that to understand what tshuva is, first we have to understand what the Zohar says, that tshuva is tosh of hay. You're restoring the hay. That's what he began in chapter 4, and then he continued in 5 and 6. He explains what happens when a Jew sins. A Jew contains within himself the name of Hashem, the letters of Hashem. When you sin, you take the letter of Hashem, you take that energy and you, you lower it into the klippa. And so teshuva means to restore, to return the hay to its proper place. That's the deeper understanding, the mystical understanding of Teshuvah. That's the process of Teshuvah. That's what happens when a person does Teshuvah. And this chapter is going to explain and teach us how a person could achieve this Teshuvah. And that's how he starts out. The true and direct path to achieve this lower level of Teshuvah. Now, the question is, why do we need these four chapters to explain to us? Why is it important? in order to do Teshuvah, to understand the mystical aspect of Teshuvah. That Teshuvah, what happens when a Jew sins, what a Jew is, what happens when you sin, the effects of your sin, and what you accomplish through Teshuvah. When in the chapter 1, he lays out the foundation for Teshuvah, and he explains very clearly that the essence of Teshuvah is that moment, that turning point that you return back to Hashem it's one moment and it's accessible to every Jew it's easy and accessible because the essence of Teshuvah is if you strip away all the externals and the details and the conditions the, the core the essence of Teshuvah is when a Jew returns to Hashem says Hashem I was a bad boy a bad girl I disconnected myself I ran away. I ran away from home. I played AWOL. I deserted the army. Now I am returning. I want to, I want to belong again. I want to, I'm yours. That moment when you turn back and you say, I'm yours, that's the moment of Teshuvah. And that happens in a split second. In order to do a complete Teshuvah, for that you need all the details. Because you have to fix the mess that you made. You have to make amends. To ask forgiveness. 
to obtain forgiveness. You created scars. You left damage. Just like if a person stole, you have to restore, you have to pay back the money. Whatever damage was done. But the essence of Teshuvah is the moment you turn back. The moment you reconnect. And that can happen in a split second. So that turning, why is that important? If that's the essence of Teshuvah, I can accomplish it without all this information. Why, do, why is it so important for us to spend? We've been spending weeks studying and learning in depth. The idea of Shuva in the mystical sense, as the Zohar says, it's Tashuv, hey, you're returning the hey, you're restoring the hey, because every Jew has within itself is made up, the substance of a Jewish soul is God's name, Yudke Vavke, and by doing, by, by behaving and thinking and, think, and speaking in a way that's not Jewish, you're taking the hey, you're taking that divine energy, and you're putting it into the, into the, into, into the negative place, and therefore you have to restore it, and now he's going to teach us in this coming chapter 7 what is the direct path, the true path and the direct path in order to achieve this lower level of Teshuvah. What do you mean the true path and the direct path? What do I need a path? The moment you return, the moment you reconnect, the moment you feel, I want to go back home and I'm sorry that I ran off. And I regret that I ran off and I want to come back home and I make a resolve from now on, God, I'm yours. I'm your child. I'm your faithful, loyal soldier. I'm yours. I belong to you. That moment, that you can achieve without all this. Without the Rebbe says no. That's why he starts out. The true and direct path to the lower level of Teshuvah. Returning the latter hay. True. What do you mean true? There is a path that's not true. The path in chapter 1 is not true. And in order to achieve the true path of the Shuvah, for that, he's going to teach us in chapter 7 what's the true path. What do you mean by truth? So it's interesting, the Talmud, we find in the Talmud, that it says a, uh, a male who has gonorrhea and becomes impure and in order for him to become pure he has to dip into the mikveh so the Torah says it has to be mayim chayim it has to be living waters it's not just a regular mikveh it has to be a wellspring and also the red heifer the Torah says it has to be mayim chayim it has to be living waters a wellspring. What if there's a river? A lying, a lying river. That's the language in the Talmud. Naharis HaMachazvin. A lying river. So that doesn't qualify. That's not called living water. And you can't use that water. By, you can't dip into the mikveh in that water. It's, it doesn't qualify. What do you mean a lying river? The Talmud says, a river that dries up once in seven years. So what do you mean a lying river? It's real. You can drown in it. <laughs> the water is there. But since it doesn't last, it has no staying power. If it has no staying power, then it's called a lying river. It's interesting, this is chapter 7. He's talking about 7. <laughs> 
that emes, the quality of emes, how do we know that something has staying power? If it lasts seven years, then you know it has staying power. If it doesn't last, if it dries up once in seven years, so even though you look at the river and you can drown in the river and the river is, 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 is the river, but since it dries up, it has no staying power. It has, it's lying. It's called lying. Nothing in this world is eternal. This world is limited. If something can last seven years, then you know it's, it's, it's considered like it's real. It doesn't say it has to last forever. Nothing lasts forever in this world. But if it can last seven years, it means it has staying power. If it doesn't last seven years, once in seven years it dries up. If it doesn't last past seven years, it has no staying power. So the Alter Rebbe is saying that in order to achieve a lasting teshuva, a teshuva that has staying power, you can be inspired, like you said before, but the inspiration comes and goes. So yes, you feel bad, you regret, you, you yearn to come back home, you resolve never to do it again. You want to reconnect. But that feeling has no staying power. How do I make sure that that feeling and that return should really pass the test of time? That it should be permanent. It should be etched into my being. It's something real. For that, we must introduce the whole concept of teshuva as it's explained in a, in a deeper way, according to the Zohar. First, you have to understand what happens when you sin. What does it mean to sin? Unless you truly understand how terrible sin is and the negative consequences of it, then your teshuva can't be for real. Yitshuva has no staying power. Okay, so I sinned, okay. Unless you truly understand how unnatural it is for a Jew to sin. Because a Jew's substance is godly. A Jew's very being is godly. And we receive our life force through God. And we're like that rope, and we're constantly connected with Hashem, like we learned in the past few weeks. Then, when you sin, you can't help it. But you schlep Hashem with you. You take the divine energy with you because wherever you go, you carry Hashem with you because you're so connected with Hashem. It's only if you truly understand how connected, how intrinsic, how inherent, how intimate we are with Hashem. And we carry with us Hashem whether we like it or not, whether we want to or not, whether we appreciate it or not. It doesn't change the reality. A Jew is a Jew is a Jew and we carry with us that divine essence. Unless you truly understand that, only then could your truva be genuine. Because we're talking about here, we're talking about the lowest level of the shuva. We're not talking about someone who has had a core transformation and becomes a tzaddik. Person, a person who is very much influenced by temptations and is very much a part of this earthy world, coarse, crass world, and he's been affected by the world. 
And he experienced a breakdown, spiritual breakdown. He lost his way. He went bankrupt. He bankrupt. He lost everything. And here suddenly he wants to do tshuva. He wants to once again, God, I'm your loyal, faithful servant. I'm your loyal servant. I want to come home. Now on I promise I'm going to listen to you. I'm going to obey you. So again, you're talking about going, forcing yourself, going against your nature. Your nature is pulling you down. Your nature is pulling you in the opposite direction. But you tear yourself away and you say, God, I am yours. I am your soldier. I am your faithful servant. Therefore, even though my desires pull me in one direction, I promise you and I make a commitment that from now on I'm going to do the right thing. Although I'm tempted to go in a different direction. And I've tasted it and I've experienced it. And I, and I like it. But nevertheless, I'm going to do the right thing. So if you're forcing yourself to nullify yourself before Hashem, it's something that's foreign to you. Me, myself, I'm pulled and I'm tempted to surrender to materialism. But because God tells me to do the right thing, so I'm ready to take upon myself the yoke of heaven, I'm ready to submit myself before God. But that doesn't have staying power. Because it's not me. I'm forcing myself. A person can't force himself 24-7 to go against your nature. You can do it for a while. But nature reverts back to nature. It's very difficult. No guarantees. And there's a strong possibility that it won't last. But once you understand, once we learn in the past, as we learn in the past few chapters, once you understand what your substance is all about, what you're truly made of, what stuff you're made up of, and who you really are, and that your being and your essence and your sustenance and your life force comes from is the breath of Hashem, and you, you have that rope and you have that connection, and that's who you really are, then it's so much easier to come back home. Because then it's not just you're submitting yourself. You're breaking yourself. You're forcing yourself into a straitjacket. Forcing yourself to do something unnatural. No. This is your essence. A Jew by nature is a Kabbalah selling. A Jew by nature accepts upon himself the yoke of heaven. A Jew by nature likes to do the right thing. Godly thing. The divine thing. We derive pleasure from it. Because that's who we are. We thrive in it. It's not, it's not like we're forcing ourselves to do something that goes contrary to our being, contrary to our nature. And therefore, who knows if it can last? It has no MS. It doesn't have staying power. Because it's not real. It seems like so artificial. They say, no. The more you learn, the more you realize this is your nature. Therefore, it has staying power. And without Hasidus, if you don't study the, the letter of the Shuvah, the Alter Rebbe, many times you get the feeling or the sense that the Balchuva has been reborn again. He, like he's become a new person. 
a different person and there's something unnatural about it. It's like the person is not himself. I don't recognize the person. I remember he grew up and, and all of a sudden he's like a different person. There's something very unnatural and unreal about it. So it's artificial. Therefore, I'm not sure if it has staying power. And what, are you, and what are you transmitting to your children? Children see right away, is this for real or is this just an act? Or is this, it, there's something unnatural about it. But for a Jew, once you understand the deeper parts of Teshuvah, the Zohar understanding, the deeper parts, the Hasidic understanding of Teshuvah, then you realize that being Jewish is the most natural thing in the world. There's nothing unnatural about it. On the contrary, this is what's natural. It's the previous life that was completely unnatural. When a Jew sins, that's completely unnatural. That has no staying power. But for a Jew to be connected, to be devoted, to be dedicated, to give himself over to Hashem and say, Hashem, I'm yours, and to have that inner discipline, that's the most natural thing in the world because that's, that's who I am. And that's why the Hasidic Baltruva there's something very natural about them. It's not like they become saints, angels, otherworldly, been reborn again in the country. It's like they've discovered themselves for the first time. They're relaxed. They're natural. They haven't lost a sense of humor. Everything in their life, anything good in their life, is only enhanced and amplified a thousandfold. And you know where you can tell the difference? This is the key. The Hasidic Baltruva knows how to get along with his parents. <laughs> when, when the whole return to Judaism is so unnatural, it alienates them from their families. Because it's not real. If Judaism, since Judaism is real, this is your core nature. If anything, it only bring, should bring you close to your nature, bring you closer to your family, bring you closer to your parents. Right there in the Ten Commandments, honor your parents. Because it's the most natural thing, and because you can allay the biggest fears. What are the biggest fears that families have when their children suddenly goes off the deep end and becomes a Bolshevik? Oh, I lost my child. Where did I go wrong? He went off the deep end. He joined the cult. What happened to him? But then they see. He's, he's a better version of himself than, than I ever remember. He's funnier. He's more natural. He's more serious. But he's more real. He's more genuine. More loving. Kinder. Better. Everything in his life is better. More successful. More integrated. More Just has his act together more mature, connected. All of his potential is being realized. A real mensch. And that people find attractive, especially families. Wow, I thought I lost him. I didn't lose him. On the country, he became, he became, he drew even closer to me. He drew even closer to us. But this takes maturity, and this comes only when that return is natural. The Alter Rebbe says it's emes. That's what he calls emes. What's the true path to truth? 
There's a path to truva, but then there's the true path to truva. The path to truva is yes, you do truva, but it has an unnatural quality to it. It has no staying power. It's not lasting. It's not real. It's artificial. And that's also why you have to run away. You have to escape. You have to run to Jerusalem. You have to run somewhere. You can't deal with reality anymore. So you have to completely divorce yourself of your previous reality. That's the biggest sign that it's not MS. It's not genuine. It has no staying power. Unless you, you live in an artificial bubble and you create an artificial life. But it's not real. When, but when the truva is emes, it's true, then it has staying power. The Rebbe would encourage all the Baltruva not to run away from his previous life. On the contrary, go back to your previous life and bring back at the Yiddishkeit to all your previous experience, all your previous acquaintances. That's the difference when the truva is, is emes. It's genuine, it's real then it's natural. Then it has staying power. Because it's who you are. It's not, it's the most natural thing in the world. And that's not only true of the Baltruva, this is true of the Jew in general. This was the revolution of Hasidus. Hasidim were natural. Hasidim were a jovial bunch. <laughs> they were joyful. They loved life. They were cheerful. They sang, they told danced, they told stories. Judaism was a joy for them. It wasn't this, 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 this heavy, unnatural seriousness. It's, it's, you know, the most serious people in the world are the funniest people because they, they don't take themselves seriously. <laughs> but they're, they're just natural. Life is fun, but it's not a joke. Life is real. But life is real doesn't mean you, it's heavy and you walk around with a down face and I'm a sinner and I'm going to burn and, and, and I'm terrible and everyone around me is terrible and the world is... That's, that whole approach. Hasidism introduced a level of joy. The first name for Hasidim were the joyful ones. Because Judaism is the most natural thing in the world. And it's the most joyful thing. And it brings out the best with it. And it's not harsh. It's not negative. You just have to forget about yourself. Forget about your ego for a moment. <laughs> and allow your true self to emerge. This you can only accomplish through the mystical approach through Hasidism. To get beyond your ego. To get beyond yourself. It's not about me. But I have a piece of the divine inside of me. My neshama is the breath of life of Hashem. Once you realize that this is who you are, this is your substance, this is your life force, this is what sustains you, you have that rope, you have that connection, then naturally you want to dedicate yourself to Hashem. Because you're being true to yourself. It's my truth. This is who I am. So therefore, even though I have to force myself and I have to bend and I have to overcome my natural urges and instincts and I have to return to Hashem, but I'm returning home. I'm returning to my truth. 
Once a person recognizes it and senses that this is who I am and it resonates within me, then you're much more likely to sustain it. It's much more likely to last. It has staying power. It will last. This is what Al Rebbe says. This is what he's, he's going to explain in chapter 7. The true path. And then he adds the direct path. What do you mean the direct path? Because there are paths which are indirect. They can achieve the same thing, but it's indirect. Like the Talmud says, Rabbi Lazar ben Derdaya, who was a big sinner, a big playboy, wasn't a single prostitute in the world that he hasn't personally experienced, especially the expensive ones. And at the end, he did teshuva. And he put his head between his legs and he cried. And his soul expired. He felt such a clinging, such a love for Hashem, for all that he missed out in his life. How he spent his whole life in sin and futility and narishkeiten. And he realized what he was lacking, what he lost, what he missed. And he had such a yearning that he simply cried until he died. And Rebbe cried and says, there's a person who acquires his whole share in the world to come in one moment. We work a whole lifetime, and here in one moment, the Baltruva, the ultimate Baltruva, he reached such a level, such a high level of Truva, that in one moment, he connected and he acquired Elam Hab, the world to come. So he also achieved this Teshuva, but it's not through a direct path. This is, not, this is abnormal. This is something that happens, you know, out of the blue. It's not something that a person, person could... Here he's talking about the direct path. A way that we can approach it. Without something unusual happening in our lives. There's always something unusual that can happen. And that, that can lead us to teshuva. But that's something unusual. It's not something you can expect. It's not something you can... Here he's talking about a path, a straight path, the short, long way, the long, short way, sorry, a straight path that can lead us to this level of Teshuvah. So he's going to tell us what is the direct path, a path that we, which we can follow, which ordinary, average Jew can follow, which will lead him, lead him to this level of Teshuvah, the lower level of Teshuvah. So that's what he's going to explain in chapter 7. The first half of the chapter is going to tell us how we can achieve the lower level of tshuva and achieve it in the true way with lasting power, staying power. And the second half of chapter 7 is going to explain to us how we achieve, what's the direct path to achieve the lower level of tshuva. However, the true and direct path to the lower level of tshuva, returning the latter hay as noted above, involves two general elements. These two elements are awakening Hashem's supreme compassion for his soul and the subjugation and nullification of evil. Both are necessary in order to ensure that the lower level of repentance will be true and direct. The Rebbe Shlitten notes that although we have previously learned that the kernel of repentance is a firm and wholehearted resolution not to commit a particular sin again. 
Nevertheless, without the two basic elements about to be discussed, such repentance will be neither true nor direct. Truth implies permanence, as in the verse, the lip of truth shall be established forever. Should one fail to take the preparatory steps about to be mentioned here, it is entirely possible that his forsaking sin, described above as repentance, will not be everlasting, hence not truthful. Furthermore, the steps also make one's repentance direct, where a state of repentance can also be arrived at a very indirectly, as in the case of R. Elazar ben Gurdaya, who was led to repentance by circumstances which were themselves evil. The direct path to repentance, by contrast, is found by means of the steps that the Altar Rebbe now describes. The first is to awaken supreme compassion from the source of mercy for one's divine spirit and soul. He says the first thing is to awaken divine mercy. He says from the source of mercy. We find two expressions. There's an expression of Harachaman, the merciful Father, where we describe God as being merciful. But then there's another expression where we say of Harachamim. Of Harachamim means like the Father, meaning like the source. The Father is the source, it gives birth. The source of mercy, who gives birth to mercy. Of Rachamon is a description. The merciful father, a father who has, who has mercy. But then you have the source of mercy. Of, the father of mercy, period. The father that gives birth to mercy. So the father is greater, transcends the mercy. He is the source of mercy. So we're not only reaching to the level where we can call God Avarachamon, our merciful Father in Heaven, but we're referring to God as Avarachamon, since God, you are the source of all mercy. You are greater. You transcend the revealed level of mercy. You're the source of mercy. So we're reaching all the way to the very source of mercy itself. So we're not just asking for mercy, we're asking from the ultimate, the source of mercy, which is mercy of mercy. So we have to first awaken, not only awaken the revealed level of mercy, we have to awaken the source of mercy, when you touch the very source of mercy, because it's such a Rachmanus on our souls. It's a big Rachmanus on our souls. When you realize the state of our souls, it's a big Rachmanus. It says a poor person a very poor person doesn't need meditation to realize the pity of a situation. The moment he remembers where he's at, he bursts out crying because he's such in a low state. He's homeless, he's starving, he hasn't eaten, he has nothing to drink, he's, he has nothing to wear. He, he doesn't, doesn't need great reflection on realizing his sorry state. He just gives one thought and he already starts crying. You know, there was once a Hasidic Rebbe, one of the Hasidic masters, and um, 
one of his Hasidim was very wealthy and he, he went in to the, have a private talk with the Rebbe and he spent like an hour there. So one of the poor Hasidim says, Rebbe, it's not fair. Just because, just because we're poor and you only give us a minute and because he's rich, you're giving him preferential treatment, he gets to spend an hour every time. So the Rebbe smiles and says, listen, you, knew, you know that you're poor. It took me an hour <laughs> to explain to him <laughs> how poor he really is, how impoverished he is. If not financially, how impoverished he is in every other way, emotionally and psychologically and spiritually. Um, so the poor person has the benefit, he doesn't need time, doesn't need great meditation and deep reflection to realize his sorry state. He has one thought where he's at and he bursts out crying. But the truth is that the state of our soul the state of our soul. And here we're talking about someone who sinned. If you realize the state for a Jew to sin, you realize the sorry state of our soul. How impoverished we are. It's enough to touch the heart. Not only to touch and to awaken our merciful Father, but even touch the Father of mercy, the source of mercy. Because it's so heartbreaking. It's so heart-wrenching to realize the sorry state that we're, that we're in. And Hashem, only Hashem can truly appreciate how, how sorry a state we're in. We, we can't even truly appreciate because only Hashem knows who we really are deep down inside. Only Hashem knows us for who we really are. What our soul is. What is a soul? What is a piece of the divine essence? The very breath of God. The very name of God. And only God knows the pain of the soul. The tortures, tortures of the soul. So, so we ask Hashem in His mercy. He should have mercy. He should awaken. We awaken the, the supreme mercy, Hashem's mercy. And our soul. Not we feel mercy. Our mercy is limited. We can't fully appreciate the sorry state of our soul. But only Hashem. And, and could really feel that and have Rachmanus. You have mercy. Imagine you see, you see, it's, you see a billionaire walking out in the streets, homeless and tattered, starving to death. Your heart cries out because you, it's so sorry because you know how wealthy he is. You know, what's he doing here? What's he doing in the streets? What's he doing in the gutter? It doesn't belong there. You see a prince. Imagine you see a prince, the mightiest king. If you saw Bill Gates' son in the gutter with a cup collecting nickels. You know, the wealthiest person in the world, his son, homeless, your heart would go out. You can't, it would, you would cry because look where you're coming from, look where you're at. How, how, where did you reach this state? How is it possible? So the more you understand where you come from, and the more you understand where you're at now, you just, your heart cries. You have Rachmanus. It just evokes a, a, an intense feeling of, of mercy. 
So we're asking Hashem, we're awakening within Hashem, because only Hashem could really appreciate the Rachmanus that's on us, how sorry our state is. So we awaken Hashem, continue. There are two distinct states of divine compassion indicated by the terms merciful father and father of mercy. The former term, Aparachamon, uh, merely signifies the, that God possesses the attribute or the midah of mercy. And since midah means not only attribute but also measure, it refers to a finite quality of mercy. The latter term, Aparachamin, stresses the fact that God is the Father, the fountainhead of all mercy, arousing his essential quality of mercy from the source of mercy. This means arousing his infinite measure of compassion, supreme compassion. The first is to awaken the supreme compassion of the source of mercy of one's divine spirit and soul that has fallen from a lofty height that is the rooftop of the infinite source of life into a deep pit. So he says, Me'igra, it's an expression we find in the Talmud. Igra. Igra is a roof. Me'igra libira, from the roof to the pit. But here he adds, not only the roof, but a lofty roof. The rooftop. Not just the ceiling, but the roof, the highest roof. Within the roof itself, it's not just the roof, it's the highest roof. It's the height, the highest, the loftiest heights. Which is, the infinite source of life because there's chayim there's life and what is true life the true definition of life everything that's alive what's the true life life is divine because God is the source of life all life comes from Hashem nothing exists on its own everything on its own is not only perishable has no existence on its own so everything that exists, everything that's alive, is because the life comes from Hashem. That's true of all of existence. But for a Jew, it's much more than that. For a Jew, not only is a Jew has, is alive like everything else that exists, and is really nothing other than the divine energy that's bringing it into existence, and is animating it and sustaining it, that's true of everything that exists. But a Jew, his very substance, his very being, comes from the life of life. The source of life. Not just life, which is divine, but the source of life. From the divine essence. We have a piece of the divine essence. Our being is the breath of life. Hashem's breath of life. So, because a Jew comes from from the life of life, the source of life, other than all the rest of creation. The rest of creation is alive. And it has divine energy. And it's nothing other than the divine energy. But that's the life. That's the true life. But a Jew comes from the source of life. Comes from rooted in the divine itself. So therefore, not only was a Jew on the roof, a Jew was on the loftiest roof. A lofty roof. The highest roof imaginable. The height of heights. The peak. And then he falls to the pit. And he adds, not only to the pit, a deep pit. 
Because the truth is that this world, as Alter Rebbe said in the first part of Tanya, chapter 37, he calls this world, This world is the lowest world. There is nothing lower than this world. You can't get lower than this world. So for the soul to take, to plunge into this world, to descend into this world, it's like a roller coaster. From the top, from the peak, to the abyss. Just being here. Even if we don't sin. Just the mere fact of living and breathing and being part of this world, this physical world for the soul, it's already a torturous journey. From the height to the abyss, the peak to the abyss. But then to add insult to injury, we go even lower. Not only are we in the pit, but we dig a hole. We make the pit even deeper. Because then we go ahead and we sin. Just being in this world is already oppressive for the soul. The baby cries when it's born. Because we feel disconnected. We feel this whole egotistical world, coarse, crass, self-centered, self-absorbed world that we live in. This whole environment, this whole atmosphere is so alien and the antithesis of godliness. Everything that the soul is used to. But on top of it, we go ahead and we sin. We go against the will of Hashem, who is the life source of everything. So we go ahead and sin. We do something that no one else in the universe can do. No one in the universe can sin, only man. We can go against Hashem's will. We can go against our own very being and essence. Because we are nothing other than Hashem's will. That's our life force. So here we dig a hole. We're we already in the hole. But we go from bad to worse. We thought we've reached the bottom. We thought we've hit bottom. Then we go ahead and we sin. And we create a new bottom. A new law. A depth in the, in, the, in, the, in the bottom. In the depth. In the bottom. New depths. New lows. And every moment the exile continues, we're exploring new stratas of, of lows, new lows, a new depth. So this is the ultimate from one extreme to the other. From a height, the roof, and not just the roof, the loftiest roof. Because the truth is, everything that exists is really nothing other than the divine energy. But a Jew is rooted in the source of life. And the divine itself, that's our being, that's our substance, the breath of life. That is our soul. That is our life. And we take that life force, and not only that life force, take a plunge into the depth. But then we went mining, and we went digging, and we discovered new depth, new levels of depravity and decadence we've never experienced. For the soul, this is this is this is Rahmanas. When you realize who you are, where you come from, and you realize where you're at, it's enough to make you cry. What have I done? Where am I? What am I doing? So you have Rahmanas. And Rachmanus touches a person very deeply. 
Rachmanus is more than just compassion. Rachmanus is very, very. He evokes empathy. Rachmanus is. Rachmanus touches a person in a very deep place. It's really touch. It gets to you. When you have mercy and so on, it's very personal. It comes from the inside. It really touches you very deeply inside. That's why children don't have the ability to have Rachmanus. They just don't, don't have the maturity. They can be nice. Children can be nice. Children can be kind. But they don't have the ability to have mercy, to, have, to empathize. Because to, that takes maturity. That's something that comes from the inside. When you feel, you have Rachmanus. You see a sorry situation. And you can feel how sorry it is. Then you just say, your heart, you cry. You can't hate that person, just cry. So when you realize the sorry state that we're in, you look at the whole picture, you're able to appreciate the whole picture. Once you grasp the whole picture, who is this? Who are we? Our soul. Where are we coming from? From the height of heights. The source of life itself. And look where we are now. Look where we're at. Not only in the pit, but in the depth of the pit. You can't help but burst out crying. What have I done? How have I taken such a soul, such a precious diamond, such a jewel, a crown jewel, and I've dunked it in the toilet, in the gutter, It, it's, it doesn't fit. It's so... It, so, you have Rachmanus. And he describes, what is this deep pit, the depth of the pit? Namely, the chambers of defilement and citra offer. As explained in the previous chapter, a person sins degrade his soul to the chambers of the clipot and citra offer. Finding itself in such a sorry state, such a soul is indeed in need of divine compassion. We are, we're in need of divine compassion, and the truth is, only Hashem could really appreciate. As much as we can appreciate it, we don't even understand half of it. We don't even realize what a sorry state we're in. What a Rachmanus is. How much in pain our soul is. We don't hear. We don't listen. We don't hear. We don't pay attention. We can't hear it. We don't realize how our soul is crying. Only Hashem could really appreciate it. And in addition, he says, One should arouse divine compassion as well for the source of the soul and the source of life, the four-letter name of God. Since the soul is rooted in the tetragrammaton, its degradation brought about by sin correspondingly causes the flow of holiness that emanates from the tetragrammaton to descend into the chambers of the clipo and the citra apra. Hence, not only 
So to have Rachmanas, a person has to be in touch with his soul. Only a soul that's that in that part within us that's undefined, that's genuine, can really feel Rachmanas. So if you know what a soul is, if you understand what the soul is, and you know that we have a soul, then you can have Rachmanas in the soul. If you appreciate what a soul is. And a soul is so genuine and so sensitive and so real. And you look what a soul is and where it comes from and where the soul is now because of our actions. Look what we've done to our soul. We've taken something so delicate, something so precious, something so sensitive, so real. And look what we've done to it, mercilessly. We've taken hatchets and like, like torture. Torture our poor soul. So you can't help but have Rachmanus. But then it goes much deeper than that. It's not just our soul that's in pain. We've schlepped our soul from the loftiest heights into the deepest depth, the pit of pits. But we've also touched the divine because a Jew touches the divine. Our source, our being, our substance is nothing other than the source of life. The divine itself. We have a piece of the divine inside of us. Our substance is God's name. Chelik Hashem Amay, as he explained earlier. So when the Jew sins, it's not just the soul that's tortured. But we take Hashem Himself and we chain Him. And we schlep Him into the pit of pits. And we torture Him. And we bring him into that spiritual concentration camp. And we imprison him into the dungeon, into the Tower of London. And Hashem is in pain. So it's not only we have Rachmanus in our own soul, you don't care about your soul, you don't appreciate your soul. But have Hashem, have Rachmanus and Hashem. What do you want from Hashem's life? <laughs> what do we want from Hashem? What did Hashem do, do wrong? What, what, what's his fault? What's his problem? That we can't control ourselves? That we're out of control? We can't contain ourselves? We can't do the right thing? We can't listen to Him? He should hate us terribly for bringing Him down so low. He doesn't he hate us rather than compassion. He should hate us. He doesn't hate because you. When you're filled with mercy, you can't hate just the nature of things. If there's someone who's acting out in the office and you're very angry at him, you're very upset at him, you hate him. But what if you understand, if you have the ability, the capacity for compassion, and you understand, you have a soul feeling, it's something intangible, something on the inside, you know where he's coming from. He was abused as a child. His arrogance is just a cover-up for his insecurities. It's bluff, it's bluster. And you see right through it. He's pretending to be very harsh and mean, but underneath it is a hurt little child that never grew up, a little immature baby, a spoiled brat that never grew up. And it's just an immature child. The more you understand on the inside what's really going on, and if you understand the person, all you do is you, you can you wave your head and say, it's Rachmanus. I, I pity you. 
And by the way, he loses all his force then. Because his all, he's only able to control you if you fall for it. But the moment you understand and you don't fall for it and you don't allow yourself to be controlled, and instead of you being getting angry and upset, and that's the reaction he's expecting, that's a typical reaction, that's a normal reaction. Instead, you just wave your, shake your head and look at him with rachmanas. He's completely disarmed. He doesn't know how to react because you're reacting genuinely. This is all bluff. This is all bluster. There's no reality to it. It's pure ego, arrogance, nonsense. And if you don't respond to the nonsense and you're not taken in by the nonsense and instead you're above it, you're wiser, mature, and you just look and shake your head, you know, I have Rachmanism. You're like a little baby. You, 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 never, you know, he completely disarms him. He drives him. He doesn't know how to react because you're reacting, you're coming from a genuine place, with Rachmanus. Rachmanus is genuine. It's deep. A person who's superficial doesn't know how to react to Rachmanus. But a person who has an Ashama, who has a soul, who's in touch with his own soul, that undefined, deep place inside of us, and therefore you can act, react with sensitivity to another person. You can look at the bigger picture. You can go deeper, beyond the surface. And if you, your heart is filled with Rachmanus for another person, you can't hate another person. If your heart is filled with compassion and mercy, you can't find it in your heart to hate. I have pity him. I can't hate him. He's a little baby. He's a little child. He never grew up. How can I hate him? I just have pity him. So surely, if that's true with us, surely Hashem, who's not only the, the, the uh, merciful Father, but He is the source of mercy. He is the father of all mercy. He is the source of mercy itself. Surely Hashem feels us and knows our true situation. And Hashem realizes where we are, who we come from, where we come from, how we come to sin. He did put us in a world filled with temptations, distractions, challenges from right to left, left field, throws us curse Hashem knows the Rachmanis, the true Rachmanis on us. So Hashem can't hate us. How can Hashem hate us? Hashem is filled with Rachmanis. That's what we're awakening. We're evoking Hashem's Rachmanis, Hashem's pity and compassion. When we evoke Hashem's pity and compassion, there's no room for hatred. All there is is Hashem cries. And when Hashem, we evoke Hashem's mercy and compassion, that awakens something within us. Then we can get to something deeper, something beyond the surface, and something touches us and wakes us up and stirs us up inside and ignites that spark within us. So that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to evoke Hashem's compassion by the best of our ability to evoke compassion in ourselves, the best of our ability to realize we have a soul and to realize what the soul is, and to realize where the soul comes from, and to realize where the soul is at now, then you have Rachmanus. See, a person who takes his status quo as his reality, unfortunately, that's how most people accept themselves. And that's how most people look at other people. Ah, he's a soulless person. He's a heartless person. He's a superficial person. He's an empty person. And that's how the elite look at most people. Uh, they're, you know, they're nobodies, they're nothings, they're insignificant, inconsequential. So if you look at a human being, 
It's an animal. And you have, you have no expectations of them. Because, you know, most people live up to the, your expectations of being brutish and nasty and petty and empty and superficial and external and empty-headed and empty-minded. And, and it's just... So if you look at people that way, and most people look at themselves that way, listen, this is, this is human nature, this is who we are. There's, not, there's nobody home. There's nothing to expect. I have no expectations. As a matter of fact, today we dumb down all expectations. We have zero expectations from anyone. Just be the animal. Unleash the inner animal. Be the chaya that you are. And the, the, the free person is someone who's free to be the biggest chaya you can imagine. Free from any constraints and any restraints. And be proud of your piggish, selfish, self-centered, self-absorbed existence. So this is what you have no expectations of yourself. And this is who, what most people are, and this is who we are, and that's it. Then you can't have Rahmanas. But if you realize, nothing can be further than the truth. Every one of us has a soul. Every one of us has a piece of the divine essence. And that soul is real. And that soul has a life of its own. No matter how we're living, no matter how we're behaving, no matter what's going on in our lives, it doesn't change the reality of that soul. And where the soul comes from, the soul is rooted in the life of life, the loftiest roof. That is our true nature. That is who we are. We have it inside of us. It's a living, breathing reality. Our neshama is a living, breathing truth and reality. So when you see someone who's so external and so superficial and so egotistical and so impossible and ridiculously absurd, instead of dismissing them and labeling them, well, this is okay, then what do you expect from people? Most people are empty, superficial. It's not true. Every one of us has a living, breathing soul. The breath of Hashem. The source of life. This is the way you're living. You're living a life that's so empty, that's so superficial. You're in the the bottomless pit, in the pit of pits. You've dug a hole into the pit. Your soul is in anguish. Your soul is in pain. This is so not you. This is so foreign to you. How do you come, someone so lofty, the prince of princes, the... How do you come from the lofty king's palace? Where do you, how do you end up in the gutter? How do you end up so ridiculous? Where, you know, like like a, a peasant, a peasant, a ignorant. How do you belong? In, you come from the king's palace. You're the prince. Where do, where do you end up in the gutter in the streets? It, it's so it it's so not you. So you can't, be, you can't be filled with hatred. You only fill with Rachmanus. And that Rachmanus can help awaken that soul. If you approach a Jew with soul, you'll evoke the soul. Why do you think Chabad has such a success and stirred up and started the whole Balchuva movement throughout the world? Because when you have soul, you can evoke the soul. You can see the soul of the other person. Don't be taken in by the, by the nonsense and the externals and the narishkeit and don't label a person. Don't dismiss them. Whatever is going on inside of their lives. You see past it. You see beyond it. You, go, you see underneath it. There's a soul. 
And that soul is real. And that soul is alive. It's vibrant. It's an energy. And when you see a person living such a pathetic life, so distant, so alienated, so foreign, so the opposite of who you really are, you have Rachmanus. How can you hate? And therefore you approach every Jew with love. And it takes one soul to touch another soul. And you evoke the soul. And suddenly you see the Jews start coming alive. The Jews starting to come home. Returning. Restoring himself to his true self. Suddenly you see things in the Jew you never expected. There's depth. There's substance. There's something real. There's something beautiful, noble, godly. All of a sudden, all, those, all that nobility starts emerging, peeking out. The simple average Jew, all of a sudden, you see traces of nobility, signs of nobility, signs of sparks of greatness, of genuineness, of goodness, of kindness. It was all buried. It was dormant, submerged. But it was there. And now you, it's emerging. But this can only come about through Rachmanus. But to have Rachmanus, you have to have a soul. It takes one to know. If you're an immature person, can't have Rachmanus. Children can't have Rachmanus. Jewish years are not measured by the passwords. They could be a 90-year-old, but he's an emotionally, psychologically immature child. Doesn't have, doesn't have the capacity for genuine Rachmanus and empathy. Because he has, he's not in touch with his own soul. You never grew up. You're never in touch with your own soul. You can't see the soul in another person. So therefore your approach to life is negative, harsh with your own family and harsh with others because you're not in touch with your soul. If you're in touch with your soul, it's not possible for you to be harsh. It's not even a possibility. There's no room for harshness. But there's a lot of room for Rahmanas. A lot of Rahmanas. A lot of crying, a lot of pity, but not harshness. And Rachmanus touches us very deep. And it awakens us. And it evokes our neshama. And it touches Hashem very deeply. The source of Rachmanus. And it awakens us and touches, awakens something within us. It stirs something within us. It wakes something up. Something real. Something that's been buried for a long time. And dormant, but it's there. So that's what he says. The only true path to Truva is, it has to be through Rachmanus. By evoking Rachmanus on our soul, appreciating our soul, where it, what it is, where it comes from, and where we've placed it. And also evoking Rachmanus on Hashem Himself. When you realize that as a result of our actions, and here we're talking about the simplest Jew. You don't dismiss, well, who cares? He's, he's a nobody. Who cares what he does? What? A nobody? Every single Jew, everything that we do affects Hashem Himself. We're so rooted and we're so deeply connected that we have the power to schlep, whether we like it or not. The Jew could be sinning for 40 years. Every time he sins, he's turning, he's bringing Hashem into the plunging and taking the divine energy and bringing it into the dungeon. That's how connected we are, as we learned last week. So again, how can you hate that Jew when you realize how connected every Jew is? How profoundly connected every Jew is, even in, this, in our sin. Then you can only have Rachmanus on the Jew. 
have Rahmanus and Hashem. Why, what, what, why is it Hashem's fault that we're schlepping him in all the wrong places? Hashem, didn't, Hashem doesn't deserve it. Hashem deserves better from us. Everything He's done for us and everything He gives us. How can we do this to Hashem? If you have no Rahmanus in yourself, you don't care about yourself, okay? Care about Hashem. Have Rahmanus in Hashem. Why are we doing this to Him? He said clearly in his Torah, this is the way I want you to live. And I'm going ahead and going against his Torah. I'm going against his will. I'm smarter than him. I'm, I know better. Hashem says, this is the way I want. So I know better and I'm going to go against every time. Uh, have Rahmanus. If you have no Rahmanus in yourself, have Rahmanus in Hashem. It's not like yeah. Hashem doesn't know what we're going to do. It's true. But Hashem's knowing doesn't affect us and it's only when we actually do the sin that we actually cause all this all this tremendous damage so he said Hashem could say I told you so he knew in advance yeah but that that knowledge is a, is a more wholesome abstract knowledge it's when we actually sin that we that the effect that we actually schlep Hashem's energy into the negativity is only when we actually sin. The fact that Hashem knows that we are what we are going to do, that knowledge at that point we haven't schlepped Hashem into the. But so only when we have chosen and actually sin, at that point, that's when we take the divine energy and we schlep it and lower it into the dungeon. And that's when that's that's the painful part. You know, just knowing, knowing is more abstract. But when we actually, when it actually happens, that's when Hashem is in pain. The level that Hashem is in pain, that's when, that's when He's in the dungeon. You know, when He knows, then He's not in the dungeon. But when we sin, then He's in the dungeon with us. So have Rahmanas. Have Rahmanas in Hashem. Deserves better. Why are we schlepping Him in the dungeon? What did He do wrong? <laughs> you know this this whole without Hasidus you know Teshuvah this is like the moment of truth this is where you can really tell the difference between Hasidus and not Hasidus because without Hasidus all of Judaism is very harsh Especially when it comes to tshuva, forget about it. Ah, sinner. <laughs> That's when the non-chassid comes alive. Oh, now, now I come, now let me talk about harsh. You haven't seen anything yet. Now let me start beating up on myself. Let me start whipping myself into, into submission. Let me start whipping myself up into shape. Harsh. We reinvent the word with harsh. And nothing can be further than the truth. That's not what tshuva is about. It's not about harshness, not about He's talking about Rahmanus here, not harshness. When there's Rahmanus, there's no room for harshness. It's a whole different world. It's almost like a different universe. It's like, it's such a dark place. Without Hasidus, it's such a dark place. Yiddishkeit. Not the Yiddishkeit of our ancestors thousands of years ago, because they were holy people. And instinctively, they just had the right approach. It was joyful. And the era of prophecy. 
for the first thousand years of Judaism. And to be a prophet, you had to be joyful. You had the temple. You went to the temple. You, you experienced godliness. The Jews were on a very high level, as we learned last week. Till the destruction of the temple, the Jew received his life force directly from the divine. That was his life, his physical life. And if he sinned, he simply couldn't live past the age of 50 or 60. There was such a, a vibrant connection. It was alive. It was a live connection. And then, as a result of the destruction, everything became distorted. But then, still, you had the Go'inim, the Rishonim. You had, they were giants. My Maimonides and Rashi, until the Shach and Taz. Even the latter, they were all written by divine inspiration. They were holy Jews. And then Jews lost it. Judaism became so harsh. So, such a distortion of what it really is. No wonder why Jews couldn't run away fast enough. Overnight. 200 years ago, every Jew in the world was observant. Up in two, 300 years ago. Overnight, all of a sudden, 80% of Jews couldn't run away fast enough. Because instinctively, Jews felt there's, there's some distortion here. It's not, this is not... Because it became very harsh and it became so far from the truth. Soulless. And the only way for it to really to come to Judaism with an emes, like he says. Emes means it's genuine. The true way. With lasting power, with staying power. And it's, and it's the most natural thing in the world. And it's the most joyful thing. It's only when you study the soul of Torah. A Jew today who only studies Talmud and only studies Allah and never studies Tanya, never studies Hasidus, is clueless. And in the worst case scenario, you get a grotesque distortion. A Yiddishkeit that's so hard, so unnatural, so unreal, so soulless, so joyless, so negative, so harsh. It has no staying power. It has no lasting power. So the whole tshuva, it's so revolutionary. The Alter Rebbe did with the Geras tshuva. People realize the power of the Geras tshuva. It's no wonder why the Rebbe spent more time explaining the Geras tshuva than any other part of Tanya. Because it's so powerful and so revolutionary and so relevant to our generation because that's the theme of our generation, tshuva. The whole Baal movement started with the Rebbe really going to town with the Geras HaTshuva and explaining it and articulating it and bringing it out. And this sparked the whole Baal movement. The renaissance of Tshuva in our generation. It all comes from this. People realize the power of Tanya. There will be a thousand people here. More than a thousand. But the... Uh, you know, it's like, it's like the world's best kept secret. Tanya is the world's best kept secret. I mean, it's so powerful and revolutionary. It's like... <laughs> you know, I was just concluded the story the Alter Rebbe famous story that uh, Rabbi Pinchas of Karetz who was a colleague of Rabbi Dovber the Magda Mizrich, one of the prized students of the Baal Shem Tov, um, disagreed with the Magid's approach Rabbi Dovber who taught Hasidus and communicated it and disseminated it and spread it and he felt that it has to be it's too precious to show the proper respect, it has to be something that's guarded and secret and not everyone is allowed in and 
you know, it's only for the elite, for the, not the elite, for the special, and you have to be worthy of it, and you have to make yourself worthy. And this was an ongoing argument between them. At one time, Yigar Pinchas Karas came to visit Rabbi Dovber. And to his shock and to his horror, he saw a page of Hasidus was blowing in the wind on the floor on the streets. That's it. This just proved this point. That his colleague is acting recklessly. Rabbi Dovber, the Magid, spreading Hasidus, making it available to everyone, to simple people who don't appreciate it. And look, a piece of Hasidus, this is, this is the most precious, the secrets of the secrets of the Torah, the crown jewels of the Torah, and people don't even appreciate it. It's on the streets and no one even pays attention to it and people are treating it with disrespect. So he had a terrible, terrible anger on Rabbi Dovber. This just proved Rabbi Pinchas Karitz's point that his colleague is making a big mistake and his whole approach to Hasidus is wrong. And when Rabbi Pinchas Karitz gets angry, not just he gets angry, the whole heaven gets angry. And Rabbi Dovber Magid felt that there was a tremendous, tremendous anger and accusation in heaven against him as a result of Rabbi Pinchas Karitz's anger, righteous indignation. And he wasn't wrong. A chutzpah, the crown jewels of the Torah on the floor, treated like, 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 like nothing. Disrespectful. The Alter Rebbe was at the scene, and he sensed right away that something, that Rapinkos Karitz is anger, and he knew that Rapinkos Karitz gets angry. It can have tremendous negative implications. You know, people can get hurt. His Rebbe can get hurt. This is serious stuff here. This is not a child's play. Mm-hmm. So he told Rapinkos Karitz, let me tell you a story. He gave him a parable. It's the famous parable that there was once a king who only had one child who was going to be the prince who was going to be the next king. And once his son got deathly ill and they brought in the best doctors and they couldn't heal him. And it was getting worse. And finally they called in the best doctor in the world and the doctor examined the child. The child was so sick at this point. He was like hanging between... He was one here away from death. and, And the doctor says, listen, there's only one thing that can cure your child. You have to take the crown jewel, the crown jewel, the most precious jewel known to mankind that's been stored in treasures by your ancestors for generations after generation. You have to grind it, turn it into dust. And this dust is very magical. If you take this dust with a little water, you pour it, you'll allow the child to drink, then he will be cured. But I have to tell you, by the time you called me at this point, by the time you're going to grind the crown jewel, this, the prince's condition deteriorated. So I'm not even sure if he can even drink any of the mixture. I don't know if anything will even go in. You're going to pour it, and most of it will just go to waste. So he says, what do you think happened? You think the king hesitated for a moment? The king says, what do I need a crown jewel? Who cares about a crown jewel? If I have no ear, if my son dies, I care more about my son than I care about this crown jewel. So even let me, it's worthwhile. He ran and rushed, crushed the crown jewel, turned it into dust, made this mixture, mixed it with water, and poured it on his sons. Maybe, maybe one drop will get in. Because if this one drop gets in, it's enough, it's powerful enough to revive the son, make him come back alive almost resurrect him, bring him back to life, restore him to health. Pinchas smiled, 
because he, uh, he got it. He understood what Alter Rebbe was telling him. And later on, Rabbi Dover thanked him. He says, he says, there was such an accusation against me in heaven. And then I saw that you came and with your wisdom, you were able to save the day because you made the Pinchas smile. You made his load, you know, load off his chest. And, once, and that passed, that cloud passed. In heaven, everyone agreed that this was the right path. So this is what Alter Rebbe did. Alter Rebbe took the crown jewel and he communicated and publicized it and spread it and articulated it and put it in the Tanya. So I believe Yisrael says, I can't believe he put such a great God in such a small book. <laughs> and the Rebbe published it all close to five, 6,000, 6,000 places. The Tanya was published all over the world. Almost 6,000 publications. Literally in every city in the world, including right here in the Upper East Side. I, this is, this is, these are bombshells. Every letter, every word, every chapter, every part of the Tanya, one bombshell greater than the next bombshell. Original things that, it's just, it's mind-boggling. It's mind-blowing. And yet it's like, no one pays attention. <laughs> it's on the side. Huh? What? When? Where? What? I, <laughs> but it's all worthwhile. Because maybe, maybe one drop will get in. And this one drop will enter into the child's bloodstream. The Jew will never be the same. It, it, it awakens us. It revives us. It restores us to our health. It's almost a resurrection. And we've seen it. Hundreds of thousands of Jews all over the world have studied Tanya, studied Hasidus. And that has ignited the spark, and awakened the spark, awakened the Neshama. And once the Neshama is awake, then... then you're, you're good. You're going in a good direction as long as you're in touch with your Nisham. This is the power of the Tanya. To be continued. This class is part of the Lessons in Tanya project. More classes available at LessonsInTanya.com.